Chapter 5. The Resurrection of the Dead Death and resurrection are necessary for life in Christ. The next elementary doctrine, the resurrection of the dead, identifies someone as a new creation. The prior life of a son of God does not aptly define him or her once the person is born again of the Spirit. A new creation replaces the old one, and a son of God exists where once a son of Adam lived. God arranged the resurrection of Christ as the basis for assembling of all whom he receives as sons into one complete spiritual reality. This reality is called the body of Christ, and it is the place that contains one's sonship, along with the relevant gifts and calling, the economy to support a life in Christ, the positioning and culture within the family of God, and ultimately, a complete return to God's original intent for creating humankind, all of which exists and is possible due to the principle of the resurrection of the dead. The principle of resurrection is one of the foundations of creation. It's essential to the continuity of life on earth. God spoke this principle into creation, saying, Let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. By creating plants and trees whose seed is within themselves, God began a perpetuating cycle of death, resurrection, and life. The Spirit of God so interwove this principle into creation that humankind does not notice and largely takes for granted its efforts. Jesus summarized the natural occurrence of resurrection, saying, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. However, this passage also foreshadows Jesus' death and the consequences of his own resurrection, identifying the natural occurrence of resurrection that veils the spiritual reality that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. God created the earth to house physical allegories of the heaven's transcendent qualities. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. That's Romans 1.20. God often chooses to explain great truths of heaven through references to the plant and animal kingdom, so a son looks like his father, and plants and animals reproduce according to their own kind. These physical representations act as veiled types and shadows that reflect the actual order of heaven. The unveiled spiritual reality of the resurrection of the dead is just as essential to life in the Spirit as seeds falling to the ground, dying, and rising again as new plants is necessary to the continuity of life on earth. The elementary doctrine, the resurrection of the dead, has two important principles for life and maturity as a believer. One is that resurrection of the dead reconnects humans to God as their source of origin and purpose. The other is that understanding the spiritual principles of resurrection helps one reconnect to the Spirit of God through the process of being born again as a son of God. The Principle of Resurrection Contained in each seed is the ability to duplicate exactly the plant of its origin. Typically, a seed comprises an outer protective casing and an inner core that contains the life to be released. When the seed is buried in the earth, the conditions of its environment, such as moisture and heat, cause a break in the outer casing and activate the life within. This is resurrection. It's the process in which life escapes through the breach in the outer casing and ascends towards the surface to begin its cycle of growth above the place where it was buried. When fully grown and bearing fruit, the plant becomes an exact replica of the one that produced the seed. It's impossible to ignore the prevalence of this principle in the natural world. Every human being experiences this process on a daily basis. 
It's been the source of food for humans and animals every day since creation, yet many routinely deny the possibility of life coming out of death. God has used the production of food, being basic to the survival of the human species, to show the eternal principle of the resurrection, which is central to his purposes for placing mankind upon the earth. God created a perpetual supply of food for as long as he planned that it should take to accomplish these purposes. From this design, one may infer that God planned that many generations should come from Adam. Thus, their existence upon the earth was not merely for the purpose of occupying space or marking time until the end of the age, but for the fulfilling of eternal purposes from one generation to another. So, God said, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Note that, seed time and harvest. Accordingly, the natural occurring resurrection is connected to Jesus' own divine purpose for being in the earth and mankind's destiny as sons of God. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. God always intended that in Christ, resurrection and life would be inseparable components for the life of the believer. The Seed of the Spirit The personhood of all human beings is their spirit, contained in an outer casing of dust, and every spirit is as a seed issued from the person of God. God formed Adam's body out of the dust, and he placed a spirit that originated out of God's own person into him. The mind of the human spirit perceives all things from a heavenly point of view, and God also gave Adam a soul so that mankind could execute heavenly realities in the venue of time and space. Humans, therefore, have the capacity to represent the invisible God in the visible realm in the manner that a seed replicates the source of its origin. In personhood and in purpose, Adam was the Son of God. Adam's purpose as the seed of the Spirit of God was to display God's nature. The manner of this display was his representation as the Son of God. He could put on display both the nature and the character of God, his Father, in the domain of earth, over which God placed Adam as the ruler. As a being derived from the personhood of God, Adam was to make the invisible God visible through representation. Comprising a body, a soul, and a spirit, the natural order of Adam's being was that his spirit was being preeminent over his soul, which was bound to creation by his body. His disobedience and separation from God changed that order when his soul asserted itself as the dominant part of his being, controlling his thoughts and his actions. When the eyes of the soul were opened, man's view of himself and his purpose in creation underwent a complete change. He transitioned from being a son to becoming fatherless. And in that transition, he lost the vision of himself as being spirit, like his father, and he saw himself as flesh. When the eyes of mankind's soul were opened, earthly wisdom replaced the heavenly perspective of the human spirit's mind. Immediately, Adam began to see himself only as flesh rather than spirit merely clothed in flesh, believing that the outer casing is his true being. This changed perspective altered both his view of reality and his purpose for being in the world. Previously, Adam's purpose was defined by the truth that he was a spirit being designed to replicate God's nature and character, making God visible in the domain of earth. Believing that he was merely flesh changed his imperatives for being, and survival became the primary motivation of his existence. Adam lived for nearly a thousand years after the fall, and his views became the foundation for human culture. This culture continued unchanged along that arc until the coming of Christ. 
Christ came to restore the original order of God's priorities. Jesus restored the knowledge that God placed His Son in the earth for the benefit of all mankind. This knowledge was lost to the millennia that followed Adam's fall and had been replaced by types and shadows of the truth until Jesus Christ was revealed as the Son of God. God entered into a covenant with Himself, with the Father and the Son as the parties to the covenant. Since there was no one greater for Him to swear by, He swore by Himself. The Son's part was to take on human form and to come to the earth to be the sacrificial lamb. His death and resurrection made it possible for all mankind to be sons of God. The Father's part in this covenant was to accept the sacrifice of the Son as sufficient atonement for all of the sins of humankind. His representation of God on the earth provided an alternate to Adam's departure from his original purpose. God would appoint the Son as the mediator of this covenant thereby giving him the authority to define who would benefit from it. The Father and the Son, working in perfect harmony defined by this covenant agreement, would neutralize the effects of Adam's actions and nullify all of Satan's activities, which is designed to keep man from his destiny as sons and heirs of God. The pre-creation covenant would reopen the way to God for man, and man could once again view God as his Father and himself as a viceroy of the kingdom of heaven. In Christ Jesus, mankind could be restored to the original intent of God for the creation of man. Christ's bodily resurrection is the cornerstone of the faith of those who trust in God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12-18, we read, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. The spiritual principle of the resurrection's applicable scope is much greater than the natural principle, which is the daily food supply that supports life on the earth. Resurrection of the dead is the precise manner in which mankind is reconciled to God. Every human spirit originated from God and was imparted as an endowment from God into what John Milton describes as darksome house of mortal clay. Every spirit is designed to display some aspect of God's nature in the earth. This is the predestined purpose underlying the creation of every individual. However, the complete showing of the nature of God is not possible in a single individual. God intended that the complete display of His nature and character be housed in a corporate entity comprising numerous individual parts. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. Though the analogy is to the human body, the corporate entity that is referred to is a spiritual body, called the body of Christ. The spirit housed within the body of the man Jesus is the spirit known as the Christ. Its unique distinction from all the other spirits is its ability to receive and assemble all the individual human spirits who are reconciled to God into one corporate form. Each spirit reconciled to God in this manner is regarded appropriately as a son of God, and as an assembled corporate entity, they are together referred to as the Son of God, or alternatively, the body of Christ. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body. During his brief lifetime, the man, Jesus, remained connected to God as the obedient son. The spirit within him completely obeyed every instruction from God, even the instructions that resulted in his death on the cross. His perfectly obedient life was the pattern to which all who were to be included in this corporate form would be conformed. His life on earth is proof that he was the carrier of the corporate spirit. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. However, as long as he was alive in the flesh, the spirit within him remained veiled. His death was necessary in part to release the spirit of Christ enclosed in his earthly form. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. No one could be assembled to him in his earthly form. His resurrection removed the limitations of the human flesh upon his spirit's existence. He lived and died as a natural man, but was raised as a spiritual man. Because the lesser order is included in the greater order, when he was resurrected as a spiritual man, no part of him was left in that grave. Christ's resurrection is as central to life in the Spirit as the sustenance produced by natural resurrection is necessary to natural life on the earth. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. However, Peter boldly proclaims the resurrection and the life that is in Christ. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23, we read, The Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection released the life within him, the spirit known as Christ, for the purpose of reconciling human spirits to God as sons assembled into the corporate whole. It's in the corporate son that the identity of man as sons of God is restored. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. It is only through Christ that mankind is reconciled to God as his sons. In Ephesians 2, 18-22, it says, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Apart from the inclusion in the Corpus Christi, there is no access to God and no basis upon which one may refer to God as Father. In the corporate Christ, one who has been born again of the Spirit is assembled as a part of the body of Christ. He inherits the glory that God gave to Jesus. This is the glory of calling God Father, making the one who inherits that glory a son of God. It was by that glory that Jesus was permitted to enter into a relationship with God as the Son of God. He modeled obedience to the Father, and he put on display the original intent of God for having a son. 
God as Father showed the full scope of His love for humankind through His acts and actions He undertook and through the person of His obedient Son. The Son chose to do nothing of Himself and limited all of His doings to that which the Father was doing. Jesus' obedience was in yielding His entire person completely to the dictates of His Father, making Him vulnerable in the extreme. His provision and protection had to be arranged by His Father and delivered moment by moment guaranteed through His Father's love. In a similar way, every word or thought that He expressed came from the Father, and every action He undertook was the manner in which His Father chose to express His nature in that moment. These acts revealed the nature of the Father and also revealed Jesus as the Son of the Father. Before He was known as the Son of God, Christ was known formally as the Word of God. In John 1, 1-5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Upon His advent into the earth, the Son put aside the power and authority associated with His glory as the Word of God, and learned the obedience of a Son. Upon the conclusion of His earthly assignment, He took up once again the glory of the Word. The glory of the Word is distinguished from the glory that He had on the earth, which was the glory to call God Father. Upon the completion of His destiny, Jesus returned to the Father to resume the glory He had as the Word. However, he left the glory he was given while he was in the earth by sending the spirit of sonship back to the earth upon his return to the Father. This is evident from the manner in which he described the manifestation of God that would replace him in the earth. Concerning the Holy Spirit to come, Christ Jesus said, He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And that's John 16, 13b-15. The aspect of the Spirit of God that empowers the corporate Christ continues the work that was begun in the individual Son through the corporate Son. The work of God that was put on display in the man Jesus can achieve its complete expression in the corporate Son because the body of Christ has been given the same glory that God gave to Jesus. It's the foundation of the inheritance of all those assembled to the body of Christ, because whoever is assembled to Christ has inherited the right to call God Father. This is why no one may come to the Father apart from being assembled into the corporate spiritual man. This does not result from any manner of work. Instead, it is the foundation of the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. In order to access this glory, one must be born again. The initial birth is that of spirit contained in flesh. The subsequent birth is that spirit beginning the process by which spirit becomes preeminent over the flesh. Concerning these two births, Jesus said, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The process of this new birth is that of spirit, being released from its control by the flesh through the process of death and resurrection. The elementary doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is, in part, designed to acquaint the believer with the certainty of change. After the initial spiritual birth, one begins the stage of growing up into a mature son of God, leading ultimately to a mature or exact representation of Christ. 
Paul speaks to his own growth in this regard by writing, When I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Each of the stages of maturity involves the process of dying to the old and being resurrected to the new. One ascends from glory to glory, the latter being the place of accurate representation of the Father. The process of resurrection is engaged initially when one is born again and subsequently throughout all the stages of growth and maturity, so it can be said that one dies daily and is resurrected daily. One should, therefore, not be embarrassed that God requires change as a constant part of the process of maturing. This change is so complete that it can be compared only to the metamorphosis inherent in the process of death and resurrection. I am the Resurrection and the Life In John eleven twenty-one through 26 we read, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at that last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? In this exchange with Martha, Jesus revealed one of the most astonishing mysteries of who he was on the earth. In discussing the possibility of resurrection, Martha's response, stating that there is a day of resurrection at which time the dead will be raised physically, represented the common understanding of resurrection. But Jesus was speaking of himself, and Lazarus' death and resurrection were designed to reveal the great truth about Christ, that he is the resurrection and the life. Every incidence of resurrection that occurs in nature was intended to be understood as a shadow of the superlative reality. As the Spirit of Christ, he resided in the body of Jesus, waiting for the appointed time in which, through his own death and resurrection, God would establish his spiritual presence on the earth with both the capability and the intent of assembling all those who desired to be reconciled to him into the body of Christ. Life was contained in the outer casing of Jesus' mortal clay. This is the life that is indestructible, because it is vested in a spirit being. The source of this life cannot be derived from the world around it. Instead, its continuity is as a result of having been issued originally from the person of God himself. This is described as life on earth sustained from the realm of the eternal. It is, therefore, eternal life. The Spirit of Christ was a seed contained within a body. The seed had to undergo the process of death and resurrection to display fully God's glory, which the Son came to reveal to the earth. He was the resurrection and the life because God had come in the humility of human flesh to be killed, buried, and on the third day to be raised again to life. And in that process was the salvation of all mankind. To emphasize this declaration, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in a demonstration of the power of God. Now, whoever has been assembled to Christ becomes a partaker of the life that is within the person of Christ. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the form of his resurrection was new and unique. He was put into the grave as a natural man, but the body that came forth was a spiritual body. The natural body did not remain in the ground, but arose as the spiritual being that was always housed in the natural. There is no death in the spirit. We read in Romans 6, 9-11, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, 
he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Natural bodies will be subject to death. It is to be understood that all natural aspects of the human being will eventually return to the dust. Death, however, is to be understood as a permanent separation of the human spirit from the source of its origin, and until one is reconciled to God, he lives in a state of death, although he has a spirit, because he has been disconnected from the source that maintains the life of his spirit. Jesus was put on the earth as the point of contact between the spirits of mankind and the spirit of God. The spirit of Christ, contained within the man Jesus, carried the life of God. It was from this source that the life of God can be imparted to man. Therefore, whomever God receives as a son, he assembles into the body of Christ. In this manner, one who has been previously separated from God is reconnected to the source of his life. He, therefore, can never die and passes from death to life. On the occasion of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus first declared that he is the resurrection and the life. He established his declaration through the act of calling Lazarus back from the dead. In response, an already decaying corpse that had been placed in the tomb four days earlier stirred to life and came forth. Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. By his declaration and his actions, Jesus demonstrated the truth of the resurrection and revealed that he is the source of resurrection and life. Questions Relating to the Resurrection of the Dead Now, there are many theories and much confusion surrounding the question of resurrection in the scriptures. Most of these questions result from a general overemphasis on going to heaven among religious groups. Various theories have taken root and surround the resurrection of the dead, but in cleavage to a theology based upon going to heaven, they ignore certain key concepts. The focus tends to turn to eschatological or end-times theories. Though these issues are not central to the elementary principle of the resurrection of the dead, they are important issues to examine for a more complete understanding of resurrection in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, 35-53, in verse 55, we read, But someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. 
I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The First Resurrection and the Rapture Perhaps the most common end-times theory that surrounds certain elements of resurrection is the rapture. This concept takes various forms. The most common form is the belief that all believers in Christ present on the earth will be suddenly removed from the earth to heaven at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, where they will wait out this seven-year period. The idea is that God will remove them from the earth to keep them from suffering, as the rest of humanity endures both the rampage of the beast and God's retribution. The rapture theory is predicated upon the scriptural time of the resurrection of the dead, at the end of the age, when Christ returns to the earth. However, it is not clearly understood as the resurrection of the dead, merely as the transformation and rescue of believers in Christ, and it ignores the basic concept of much of the details surrounding the sudden transformation of the living believers in Scripture. Scripture describes the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, or the first resurrection, as occurring on the day of the Lord's return from heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17, we read, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This event involves both the resurrection of the dead in Christ and, subsequently, the sudden transformation of those still living. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53, it says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Together they'll be caught up into the clouds. Note that no one will be caught up to heaven, only to the clouds. In further contrast to the rapture theory, upon being raised and or changed, they will return with Christ to the earth. In Revelations 24, b and 5, it says, They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This first resurrection begins a thousand-year reign on the earth with Christ. In Revelations 20, verse 6, it continues, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. This event definitively concludes the current age. Jesus gave the disciples a detailed account of the sign of His coming in the end of the age, which will be the time when those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. 
Jesus described events and circumstances at the time of his actual physical return, and later angels confirmed that Christ would return. There will be no secret to the return of the Lord. It is meant to be the most arresting event in all of human history. As opposed to the narrow view of the rapture as an opportunity to escape to heaven, resurrection itself is a much more significant concept in Scripture. It describes the condition that results when one has become victorious over death. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection applies only after one has died, physically or symbolically. Resurrection provides a complete transformation in the nature of the being, one that is free from the consequences of sin and death. Even for those still physically alive, post-resurrection existence is sufficiently different from one's former life so that the person is an entirely new being. The only way forward is through resurrection. The person coming through this process begins a new life as a resurrected being and a new creation. There is no truth in any condemnation of sin rooted in the old life, and through the continual process of repentance and the renewing of the mind, the person is freed from the consequences of sin. The Form in Which the Dead Are Resurrected But someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul proceeds to answer this question fully. He says, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else, but God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed He has given its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, and it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, as at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 37-58. He first explained that when you sow, you're not planting the results that will come, but the seed from which the result will come. So then, if one plants an acorn, an oak tree will come up out of the acorn, an order exponentially greater than the thing that was planted. He offers as an explanation the fact that this phenomenon is readily visible in nature, noting that there are many different kinds of bodies on the earth, such as birds, fish, and animals. He extends the comparison to the heavens and compares heavenly bodies and their splendors with the earth. The earth is different from the sun, the moon, and the stars, and even the stars are different from one another in both their environments and their splendors. He uses this analogy to compare the natural body to the spiritual, and in that comparison he observes that the natural body is perishable, weak, and degenerates over time, whereas the spiritual body is imperishable, glorious, and powerful. Paul firmly asserts that, as surely as there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body that comes after the natural. He concludes that just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, referring to Adam and Jesus Christ, respectively. The resurrection will supply a spiritual body in the place of the natural. Paul says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus is the first fruits of those who died. He was crucified in his natural body and died. And he was raised in his spiritual body as the Christ. He did not leave behind in the grave a remnant of his previous natural form. The lesser form is included in the greater spiritual form. Body, Soul, and Spirit One of the related questions to the resurrection is whether resurrection serves any purpose for those who are taken to heaven when they die. To understand the need for the resurrection after a person has died, it is necessary to have a more complete picture of what God intended. God gave human beings spirits to connect mankind to God. Through the Spirit, every person has access to the heavenly realms and understanding regarding God's intent for the creation of the world. God also gave the human a soul so that each person could translate the understanding of the heavens and of God into a practical and functional administration in the world. God encased both spirit and soul in a physical body, anchoring them in the venue of earth. These three distinct elements, spirit, soul, and body, are each fated for a different destination after the body dies. At the point of physical death, these three components separate. In Ecclesiastes 12, 5-7, we read, Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him, before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground that it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So when the body dies, the container of the spirit and the soul is lost, and one relinquishes the connection to the natural world. The human spirit returns to God, the origin from which it came, and, depending upon whether the person has been assembled to the body of Christ or not, the soul goes to heaven 
or to hell. The body is confined to the dust of the earth, from which it was originally made, and it must be noted that it is the only one of the three elements of one's being that actually dies. Therefore, it is the only element of man subject to resurrection. The spirit remains alive, and so does the soul, but they are no longer tied to the natural world. The Second Resurrection and the Final Judgment Bodily resurrection will occur for those who died in Christ at the time of the first resurrection and the return of Christ. For the unbeliever, however, there is a second resurrection. This resurrection of the unrighteous dead will occur at the end of the millennium that follows Christ's return. In Revelations 20, 5 and 11 through 15, John says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. At that time, those who were not part of the first resurrection will be raised to face the judgment of God as they stand before the great white throne at the end of the millennium. Whoever is born again with the Spirit is assembled into the body and has legitimate right to call God his Father. Indeed, the first cry of every newborn believer is the cry of recognition of God as his Father. Father! Father! In the person of Christ, one is restored to the original plan of God for his or her life upon the earth and is empowered by the economy designed to support that spiritual man. Such a person is a new creation, born of spirit, assembled to Christ, and received by God as a son. This is a truth of which none of the enemy's deceptions can prevail. It establishes the believer as a spiritual being who cannot be separated from the love of God.